0: Welcome, fellow true crime enthusiasts, to today's case file, Don't Ask, the murder of U.S. Army soldier, PFC, Barry Winchell. Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of Body of Crime. The Don't Ask, Don't Tell, D-A-D-T policy, which prohibited openly gay and lesbian individuals from serving in the United States military, went through a tumultuous history of challenges and resistance. The policy was implemented in 1993 as a compromise after prolonged debates and Senate hearings with opposition led by Senator Sam Nunn. Supporters of acceptance of LGBTQ individuals in the military argued that it was akin to the desegregation of races. But the military and General Colin Powell resisted this comparison.
1: 15 years ago, Senator, you worked with General Powell to stop openly having gays serve in the military and to come to a don't ask, don't tell policy. We went through a very careful uh, look at what the present law was when we set that up. A lot of people don't realize it, but back when we undertook that, there were basically questions on every military application to go into the military, whether you were gay or lesbian. If you were, and you said so, you were honest, you couldn't get in. Now, that was the policy, that was the baseline policy. What we did was then go saying, no more questions. You go in, you can serve honorably. And I'm grateful to the thousands of gay and lesbians who are serving honorably out there today. And I I know it's a tough, it's an awkward situation, but if we unwind this policy, as we unwind it, it's gotta be done carefully. You're gonna have to have hearings, you're gonna have to hear from the military, you're gonna have to hear about cohesion. You have all sorts of problems in the heterosexual sense in the military. It's one of the big problems in the military. Forget gay, lesbian, just the heterosexual part. Uh, You've got a set of rules. And if you're gonna have open service by gays and lesbians, and I think we will eventually have that, the question's timing, but if, if you're going to have that, you've got to have a very carefully calibrated set of rules.
0: The policy's flawed nature became evident when it failed to prevent discrimination and witch hunts against LGBTQ service members. Tragically, the case of PFC Barry Winchell, who was beaten to death by fellow soldiers in 1999 after suffering anti-gay harassment, exposed the dire consequences of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. The lack of reliable authority figures for LGBTQ service members exacerbated their plight as they had to hide their identities to avoid discharge. Efforts to repeal the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy gained momentum over the years, with LGBTQ service members like Lieutenant Dan Choi and Victor Fehrenbach coming forward to share their stories. The policy also faced scrutiny due to its potential impact on national security, as it resulted in the dismissal of trained linguists at a critical time. In 2010, a Pentagon study indicated that allowing LGBTQ individuals to serve openly would not harm military readiness. The turning point came in December 2010 when Congress finally passed a standalone bill repealing the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy with the House of Representatives and the Senate both voting in favor. President Barack Obama signed the act to repeal the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy on December 22nd, 2010, and the policy officially ended on September 20th, 2011.
1: An emotional ceremony at the White House this morning officially repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which means that gays and lesbians will soon be able to serve openly in the military. Jake Tapper was there. For a
2: moment, the orator-in-chief was speechless. You know, I, 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 am,
0: I am just overwhelmed.
2: As he signed the law that will end the policy that has led to the discharge of more than 13,000 gay and lesbian troops. We are not a nation that says, don't ask, don't tell. We are a nation that says, out of many... We are one. Singled out for special recognition today, Marines like Eric Alva. The first Marine seriously wounded in Iraq. Sergeant Alva told us his tale three years ago. Waking up and actually seeing that my leg was gone, it almost
0: felt
3: like a nightmare.
0: Today, he insisted the military is ready for the change. I've had so many calls, even from Uh, current military service members right now, uh, both gay
4: or straight. This
0: change allowed LGBTQ individuals to openly serve in the U.S. military, marking a significant step forward toward greater inclusion and equality. PFC Winchell's family, who had advocated for the policy's repeal, were eventually honored for their efforts in this transformative journey. On July 6,
3: 1999, PFC Barry Winchell 21-year-old kid from Missouri found himself in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, serving as an infantryman with the 2nd Battalion, 502nd Infantry of the 101st Airborne Division. It was Winchell's first duty station. In March of that same year, Winchell's roommate and a group of soldiers had gone down to Nashville bar hopping and happened to end up at a nightclub called The Connection. This nightclub featured transgender performers and it is here where Winchell met Calpurnia Adams, one of the transgender performers at the club. Winchell and Calpurnia began dating, and soon rumors of the illicit relationship began spreading, eventually reaching Winchell's peers at the army base. What ensued was a barrage of harassment aimed at Winchell. Unfortunately, where leaders could have stepped in and mitigated the harassment, the anti-gay culture of the unit allowed the harassment to continue, culminating in an altercation on the weekend of July 4th of 1999, after a day of drinking in the barracks. On July 3rd, Winchell, his roommate Justin Fisher, and fellow soldiers Calvin Neal Glover and PFC Arthur Hoffman had spent the day drinking. Winchell, fed up with Glover's tall tales, got into an altercation with the 18-year-old, the fight ending with Winchell as a victor. This became a sore spot for Glover. As the trio spent the next day, July 4th, drinking a keg of beer, Glover had vowed to get back at Winchell for the humiliation, and many of the soldiers were poking fun at Glover for being beaten by what Specialist Justin Fisher referenced as a f***ing f. Fisher and Wencho had their own history of fights and arguments, but Fisher focused on now harassing Glover. In the early morning of July 5th, 1999, Glover took a baseball bat from Fisher's locker and attacked Winchell viciously, striking the sleeping soldier in the head as he slept just outside of his barracks room on a cot. Military investigators would later find the blow to be so vicious that they found blood spatter up to 15 feet away from the body. Around 3am, someone had pulled the barracks fire alarm and the barracks began emptying out. Fisher would be the one to run for help, yelling, Winchell's dying. PFC Nikita Santarov and PFC Jonathan Joyce would see firsthand the atrocity inflicted by Glover on Winchell. Sanorov, who had originally gone out to pull his car up to take Winchell to the hospital, would later claim he saw Glover running from their barracks back to his own barracks, and also saw him carrying an armful of clothing to the dumpster. Investigators would find Glover sitting in his room with a bloodstained shirt and blood smears on the door in his barracks room. Winchell his face beaten and swollen beyond recognition would succumb to his injuries on July 6, 1999, dying of massive head injuries from blunt force trauma to the head. I came into the military before the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy. Before the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy It was a zero-tolerance policy. If you were found out to be gay or whatever, you were put out of the military. People could ask you. They could say, hey, are you gay? They could pursue that line of questioning. The don't ask, don't tell policy really didn't do a lot to stop the harassment that was going on in the military back then. You came in after the don't ask, don't tell policy. What was your experience with the policy?
0: I know that I worked with somebody who was gay we all knew that he was gay actually a couple we didn't treat them any differently than anybody else and it was very obvious that they were i know that they were uncomfortable and it's unfortunate that was the environment soldiers who no longer wanted to be in the military would come forward and say that they were gay or they were lesbian just to get out of the military because it allowed for them to get out by coming forward and saying that they were gay or lesbian even if they weren't it was a reason to chapter you out of the military. right? So I honestly hadn't done a lot of research into the policy until we decided to, to cover this case for Veterans Day. And I didn't know back then, even as a leader, really kind of a whole lot about the policy and what all it entailed and either why it was important or why it wasn't effective.
3: Sometimes we have these policies in place. And we don't really understand them. And I don't think I ever really understood the purpose of the policy. I just knew that it meant I couldn't ask someone if they were gay. So if they if they were acting feminine or if it was a guy who was acting feminine or a girl who was act, acting masculine, I just knew I couldn't go and say, hey, are you gay? And then use that as a way to put them out of the military. Right. So that that's how I interpreted that policy when I was serving. And I never had any issues with anyone serving in the military at all. But I also understood that sometimes you can kind of tell if someone is is gay, you kind of mis- assume it, but you aren't allowed really to be yourself. So you can't really say that you are.
0: You know, what's funny is that I had actually been to that club, The Connection in Nashville, and it was with one of these soldiers that I worked with and some other people that we worked with. I don't know who picked the place. I didn't pick the place, but they were doing a drag show there. That was a, a very big event there. What year? So it's interesting. It would have been in probably around 2004, 2005 oh. timeframe. But it's interesting that that place came up in this story because I've been there. But it is a very big club and lots and lots of people go there who are straight. So it's not a, you know, it's not just a gay club. Like it's a very popular club was a very popular club it's now closed but it was a very popular club there for a very long time
3: i know at one point clubs that catered to lgbtq community were put off limits to soldiers (laughs) (laughs) connection was off limits wasn't it i don't know i don't remember i'm pretty sure it was
0: (laughs) i don't know i don't
3: i don't yeah so so yeah i don't think
0: i would have gone if it
3: was well Part of it is that it's 60 miles away. So typically what happens is clubs that are deemed to be unfit for service members, either they're too dangerous or things like that, or they don't align with army values are placed on the, on the off limits list. And so that location would have been so far away, 60 miles away it would have been pretty far away for the base to make that off limits. So it probably wasn't off limits because it was just so far away. You can't put everything off limits, you know? But I know when I was at Fort Bragg, there were a couple gay clubs that were off limits to service members. And if you were caught at one of those clubs, like you Mm. could be, Hey, why were you at this club or why, you know, this off limits and they can use that as a way to, to punish you. Now, Barry finds himself his first duty station at Fort Campbell. He's a PFC young kid. Seems like he's enjoying the military comes from a, a decent background a good background from what I can tell with his parents. He's older than this 18 year old PFC Glover. And it's not until he's taken to this nightclub that things start to kind of unravel for Winchell.
0: It appears to me that the specialist Fisher, who is PFC Winchell's roommate probably had been the person who had been at Fort Campbell the longest at this point, right? Somewhere around March timeframe, frame of 1998 I believe is when Glover got there and in May so just a couple months later a few months later Winchell is assigned there so I think Fisher had been there a little bit longer so they all had been there at least a year right and according to what we find out later with PFC Winchell dating Calpurnia they had dated for about a year so that means that they would have gone to that club within the first few months of having been assigned to Fort Campbell Got it. So this had to be a spot, honestly, that Specialist Fisher was aware of and maybe even frequented with other soldiers.
3: They're in the barracks doing what soldiers do. They're drinking. It's what I remember doing when I was in the barracks. <laughs> and so even a young Glover who's 18 and is not supposed to be drinking is drinking. They're, you know, they spend the, the weekend drinking. They were drinking on the 3rd and they're drinking on the 4th. Obviously, it was probably a four-day weekend for them. So they were probably really relaxing and they were, you know, enjoying the holiday weekend.
0: And just to give you a little bit of kind of perspective of what this kind of entails or what this looks like is barracks are set up much like
3: college dorms.
0: Yeah. Much like college dorms. Each barracks room houses two soldiers and When you open up the door and you go in there, there is a common area, which would be like where your little kitchenette area is at. Generally, there's a bathroom that separates the two rooms that's shared. And then there's a door to each bedroom. And then in each bedroom, there's, you know, a twin size bed, a closet, a desk, pretty small, you know, pretty, pretty small room, probably the size that you would have when you were in high school at home. And for young soldiers who some of them have cars, some of them don't, they're single or they're under a certain rank, they live in the barracks. And in the barracks, there is always somebody who is placed on duty in the barracks who, if there's any issues with people getting in and out of their rooms, or if there's an emergency, that's kind of the person that you go to, to, you know, have log things. They keep a time log. And so during this weekend, there would have been somebody there who would have been available or anything that was happening or basically the soldiers could have went to and said, Hey, these guys are getting out of control or whatever the case may be. So right. just to kind of give you a little bit of perspective.
3: Now they get into a fight on the third.
0: And this kind of arose out of a comment by PFC Winchell pretty much telling Glover like, Hey, like, you know, he thought he was getting a little bit ridiculous. Like, Hey, go to bed, like go to your room, <laughs> kind of sending him to timeout." And he got upset granted they've been drinking and so he proceeded to try to hit a beer bottle out of pfc winchell's hand and he tried several times and eventually um, pfc winchell started to swing at him and punched him several times and it took him to the ground and then that was the end of it and then staff duty came by who is the person who's on duty there in the barracks and he said hey are you guys good he stood him up. And during this time frame, well, and I would say even now with with depending on who the person is that's on duty, they would probably do the same thing. Instead of doing anything to like really get them in a lot of trouble, you know, hey, are you guys good to go? Okay, break it up. Y'all are good. You go to your room, you go to your room. And that was the end of it.
3: I'm pretty sure that was probably a cultural thing in an infantry unit. Right, for sure. But that's definitely not a policy thing. No, absolutely not, yeah. What he should have done was they both should have gotten in trouble, and especially the 18-year-old who was drinking should have been in a lot of trouble.
0: Well, you say the 18-year-old, but anybody who was around him that was over 21 would have been in trouble as well. Would have been
3: in trouble as well. Yeah. That party should have got shut down. I've done staff duty, and those are some of the things that we look for. We look for underage drinking. We look for altercations, we look for those types of things so that we can put it, you know, nip that in the bud. Now, if it's something minor, then yeah, you typically just, you know, make them get along. (laughs) But other than that, it, it seems like this was an opportunity for someone to step in and squash the negative energy that was going on between these two guys.
0: Right. And so when he broke it up and, you know, he's like, Hey, are you guys good? Apparently to the soldiers that were present, things were not good. So apparently Glover made a comment to the effect of like, hey, we're not good. Like, I'm going to get you. This ain't over,
3: basically. So the following day, it appears that Fisher, who was Winchell's roommate, was poking fun at Glover for having gotten beaten by someone who was gay. And he used the F word. Right. And in doing so, he's charging up Glover. For some type of a reaction. Glover said he was going to get him back. Here you got Fisher that's kind of poking him and prodding him. And, hey, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And it culminates in Glover taking a baseball bat that seems to have come from Fisher. Right. And this
0: type of working somebody over is kind of common, in units like that not necessarily for a situation like this but just saying you know like messing with people you know hey you're gonna let somebody tell you that you're gonna let somebody do this to you you're gonna let you're gonna let that other soldier punk you out so that's kind of a kind of common thing as it is and so then now you have somebody who has witnessed an altercation between two guys and who everybody has been messing with saying, Oh, PFC Winchell is gay. PFC Winchell likes guys. And, you know, they're looking at that as, as a weakness, as something that, you know, they're not comfortable with. And so now they're turning around and PFC Winchell's own roommate, specialist Fisher is pushing Glover and telling Glover, not to mention, He's giving Glover drinks. So Glover's drinking beer after beer after beer. He didn't even know how many. And there's been some estimates. It was around 17 that day. And, you know, hey, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? So he's egging him on.
3: He's instigating. Glover goes in and he attacks Winchell while Winchell's asleep on a cot outside of his room.
0: This was a little bit confusing to me because... Again because of how the rooms are set up generally they have their own rooms I'm not sure why he would be on a cot outside the room it is a little bit strange to me but I did look in the official records and it does say cot and it does say outside the room in the official records That also sounds strange to me because I think he would have woken up as soon as they came in the room because it's not quiet the doors are very loud they're heavy but Fisher actually brought Glover into the room Right because that was Fisher And Winchell's room, not Glover's room. So Glover came from his barracks room with Fisher. They had been in Glover's room prior speaking. So they come into the room, and immediately when they get in there, they walk past Winchell, they go to Fisher's room, and Fisher turns on his CD player and he's playing the soundtrack for Psycho. And he turns up the music, and again, he starts at Glover with, What are you gonna do? And so there's a little bit of question as to whether he handed him the bat or he made the bat available. However that went, um, Glover picks up the bat. It's a wooden bat from in Fisher's room. It belonged to Fisher. And he went out and he proceeded to beat Winchell on the head and on the neck in the attack. Now there's been a couple different accounts as to how long it was, how many times it was. Glover doesn't remember. And Fisher has had numerous stories of which he was charged for as to his version of how things played out. At one point, he said it lasted 10 minutes. Jesus. I was stationed at Fort Campbell, and I got to Fort Campbell, Kentucky in 2004. And I was assigned to Fort Campbell EMS. And after I had been there a while, I had started hearing stories from people who were there when this took place about what had occurred and I was told that and I'm trying to reach out to some of the original guys. I don't know that they're going to want to speak openly, but that when they showed up, one, that the call seemed to be made pretty late for help for him. There was, was some apparent cleanup. And that when they were trying to get him in the ambulance, that there were so many people that it was almost like they were trying to prevent him from being loaded in the ambulance. And then when they got him in the ambulance, they were pushing on the ambulance almost to like, try to push the ambulance over. So it took a lot to go in and get him and get him out of there. And his barracks room was on the third floor of the barracks. So it would have taken him a while to get in, to get out and Of course, as we know, he passed away at Vanderbilt University Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee, which means that he had to be life-flighted from Fort Campbell to Nashville in order to achieve the care that he needed to. And he ended up passing away the following day. Pretty brutal. Pretty brutal. And the scene was very bad. A lot of people talked about how bad the scene was. And when you hear that there's blood that had been flung 15 feet away When somebody is hit with an object and they're murdered with blunt force trauma, that occurs from the object hitting somebody and the blood flinging from that object onto various areas of of the wall or other areas wherever that, that blood is hitting based on how you're swinging. And so that's not uncommon for things to be that far away. That has to do with how hard you're swinging, how fast you're swinging, where that blood is being cast off.
3: Needless to say, it was a violent attack.
0: Barry Lauren Winchell was born on August 31st, 1977 to his father, Grant Winchell, who was 30 years old, and his mother, Patricia Ann Schuyler, who was 28 in Kansas City, Missouri. He was a Virgo and he was the youngest of three boys, his older brothers being Sean Patrick Winchell, who was eight years senior to Barry, and Ian Matthew Winchell, who was four years older than Barry. To his parents, he was Bear Bear, as they affectionately called him. Barry would experience a normal childhood. His mother and father would separate and divorce. Patricia, Barry's mother, would eventually marry Waldemir Wally Peter Cuddles on March 9, 1994, when Barry was 16 years old. In 1997, after some coaxing from his mother, a 20 year old Barry enlisted in the U.S. Army, choosing to enlist in the infantry as an 11 Bravo for his job. After going through basic training and advanced individual training, or AIT, Barry found himself settling at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, in the 101st Airborne Division, known as the Screaming Eagles. It would be almost a year after arriving at Fort Campbell that Barry and Calpurnia began their romance and it would last just over a year before Barry was murdered in his sleep. Up until the point that Barry began dating Calpurnia, he had only dated women and did not consider himself to be gay, but had been curious about the gay lifestyle and was questioning his own sexuality. During this period, Fisher had outed Barry to the section leader, Sergeant Michael Cleefkin, who in violation of the Army's Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy questioned Barry about his sexuality. Not soon after that, Barry was being called names daily. Barry's section leader would admit, during his trial, that he was called names regularly and always appeared to be down in the dumps. Friends described Barry as a masculine guy who was down to earth and easy to be around. His parents would be stunned to discover that Barry was gay after his death. Barry's mother and father would later testify that Barry had wanted to become a helicopter pilot and that he was loving and compassionate and really enjoyed the Army.
3: Justin Robert Fisher, born under the sign of Aquarius in the heartland of Nebraska, emerged into this world to his parents, 28-year-old Timothy Doan Fisher and 26-year-old Connie Jean. Raised among four siblings, he was the only boy, his sisters ranging from two years older to seven years younger. Growing up in the Lincoln, Nebraska area and Cornhusker Nation, Fisher's mother endured a series of abusive relationships, leaving an indelible mark on his early life. While he struggled academically and gained a reputation as a class clown or the school's resident jokester, Fisher eventually dropped out of high school. He chose a different path, deciding to pursue his GED while enrolled in a Job Corps program. His journey, however, took a dark turn when he was convicted of attempted possession of a destructive device during his time there. Authorities found timing devices in his possession, raising suspicions that he may have been contemplating a sinister plan to settle scores. Fisher's post-job core life was marked by a string of mediocre jobs at places like McDonald's and TGI Fridays, none of which he excelled at. He also earned notoriety for frequent run-ins with the law, including arrest for disturbing the peace, trespassing, two thefts, and two burglaries. Against all odds, Fisher enlisted in the Army in April of 1997, despite his criminal record necessitating a waiver. His military journey led him to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, where he was assigned to Delta Company, 2nd Battalion, 502nd Infantry Regiment. While he was an infantry soldier, he relished his role as a commander's driver, relishing the proximity to power and influence. Fellow soldiers described him as likable and often funny, though his obnoxious tendencies were more common than not. Throughout his military service, Fisher was diagnosed with ADHD and depression, leading to a prescription of Wilbuterin. Unfortunately, he frequently neglected his medication, and instead, he turned to alcohol, transforming him into an obnoxious presence, hurling obscenities to those around him. Fisher's favorite movie, well-known to all, was Scarface. However, beneath his facade of the brash and sometimes cruel soldier lay a deeply concealed secret. Fisher incessantly taunted PFC Barry Winchell, but as it would later be revealed during the trial, he had hidden aspects of his life that was shrouded in secrecy. Unknown to his comrades, Fisher, who was PFC Barry Winchell's roommate, concealed his penchant for wearing women's lingerie under his clothing. He had been spotted making out with a transgender individual in Nashville, Tennessee. This very city would become the backdrop for the unfolding of a tragic and brutal story, As Fisher, along with other soldiers at The Connection, a gay nightclub in Nashville would be where PFC Barry Winchell would meet drag queen performer Calpurnia Adams, a connection that would ultimately seal their fates. PFC Calvin Neal Glover, an Aquarius, born on January 30th, 1981, entered this world to 26-year-old Rudy Glover and 22-year-old Kathy Irene Glover. Hailing from the rural heartlands of Oklahoma, he grew up as a young country boy but his early years were marked by constant relocation from one town to another and from one home to the next. While he wasn't a hardened criminal, trouble had a way of finding him. Glover's educational journey was far from conventional as he shuffled through various schools, including Sulphur High School and Ada High School. However, his rocky path eventually led him to drop out of school. Trouble seemed to follow him closely as he became entangled in incidents involving assault and burglary, which ultimately led him to his placement in a youth facility. Much like Fisher, Glover found himself at Job Corps, but his journey there was marred by a turbulent exit due to his involvement in a fight. Post-Job Corps, he took up residence with a friend and his activities raised eyebrows. He was known for his penchant for marijuana, beer, and embellished towels to impress the ladies. On occasion, he even dabbled in the highly addictive meth. His life took another sharp turn following a dangerous gasoline-huffing incident, landing him in yet another youth facility where he managed to earn his GED this time. Joining the military became a ticket out of this turbulent life. Like Specialist Fisher, Lover required a waiver as he enlisted at the tender age of 17. On October 26, 1998, he signed his enlistment paperwork in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, home to the state's MEPS. His journey through the military took him to Fort Benning, Georgia, for basic training, and his duty assignment landed him at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Glover shared a room with Private Kenneth Betancourt, who appreciated his neat and respectful roommate, but despite his age, Glover exhibited behavior that was all too familiar in the military life. Over the July 4th holiday, he joined fellow soldiers in a drinking session that would be remembered for its excess. Witnesses recall him playing a rather unconventional game of wiffle ball at one point even taking swings at the keg holder. It was a disturbing glimpse into the attention-seeking and destructive tendencies that defined Glover. Soldiers in the unit painted a chilling picture of Glover. Some described him as harboring racist beliefs, signified by a tattoo on his right arm representing the Aryan cross. He was heard making disturbing comments, applauding displays associated with skinheads, and harboring disturbing thoughts about minorities. His fellow soldiers were wary of lending him their cars, a testament to their unease around him. Glover's peers saw him as a compulsive storyteller, always seeking attention, which aligned with his past. But what truly set him apart were his alleged struggles with substance abuse. Soldiers believed he had a hard drug problem as he spoke openly about using meth and cocaine during his leave, with many convinced of the veracity of his claims due to his often-wired appearance.
0: First of all, Barry comes from a long line of military family members. He had a lot of military family members in his family to include his stepfather. And one of the things that his mother would later talk about is feeling guilty about kind of having the belief that she may have pressured him a little bit to join the military. Like, hey, you know, a lot of the family's done it. It's a good thing to do. But He obviously wanted to join the military. I think he liked the military. I think he was trying to get settled. He was studying actually to be a pilot. He was going to be attending school. So he was doing all the things that most new and good soldiers, up and coming soldiers tend to do. He was starting to follow a good, you know, a good path drinking. That's it happens in the barracks. It happens with all young soldiers. That's not anything remarkable to highlight, honestly. In the barracks, you tend to do things with the people that you're in the barracks with. That's normal. That's common. And sometimes you're not even in the same unit. You might be in in the barracks with people from some other companies or other battalions. And so you kind of mingle with those guys. And so being fairly new there, I'm pretty sure that, you know, a lot of these guys kind of hung out on the weekends or in the evenings.
3: No, it makes sense.
0: I really feel like Fisher has a bigger piece in all of
3: this. Fisher's the catalyst.
0: Yes. And I say that because one, he is PFC Winchell's roommate. He is also the oldest out of all of them. He is the most high ranking out of all of them. And he is the commander's driver. And when I saw that, It's disturbing to me because if for anybody who's ever been in the military, if you have ever been a commander's driver or first sergeant's driver or sergeant major's driver, any of those, guys, I'm going to tell you something. Whatever that soldier knows, that commander knows. Whatever that soldier knows, that first sergeant knows. Whatever that soldier knows, that sergeant major knows. So Fisher undoubtedly let the commander know what was going on. And if he thought anything of PFC Winchell, the commander knew. So it bothers me when I see things about who knew and who didn't know. And then to see that he was the commander's driver. I find that very hard to believe. But he is the oldest one out of all of these guys. And I feel like he's the more seasoned one. He's the higher ranking one. And so not only do I feel like he was using his rank a little bit, especially cause it's an infantry unit. And even, you know, a PFC to a specialist is a big deal in an infantry unit. I feel like he not only was using his rank, but I feel like he was using his age. And I think he was being a little bit manipulative, putting a lot of pressure on PFC Glover.
3: And Glover already seems like somebody who's yearning to belong or yearning to be accepted by others.
0: Right. He's had a rough life and he's young. So he's still yeah. in that phase of like figuring out who he is. And you know, it, He hasn't figured that out yet.
3: Yeah. And more than likely, if he hadn't been drinking, he probably wouldn't have been able to be convinced to do something like what he did. But because he was highly intoxicated, he's more receptive to that prompting and that pushing that he was getting from, from Fisher. And Fisher has a secret. Fisher has a secret that nobody knows. So it really makes you think about his motives and why if Fisher was dressing up in women's clothing. And if he was going out and making out with transgender people from the connection, why he was trying to out Winchell. Was it to deflect from his own activities
0: or even just the subconscious dissatisfaction with himself? Right. So if he was feeling bad towards himself, so if he yeah, was having those, those same thoughts about himself, like I shouldn't be this way, I shouldn't feel this right. way. And so it's also a reflection of himself. So one thing that comes out later in the trial about Specialist Fisher is about him wearing the lingerie under his uniform and under his clothes. And this psychologist brings that up or the psychiatrist brings that up because they're talking about his feelings and how that could have played a role in his taunting and his pushing as to a reason as to why this kind of came about. So they felt it was important enough to inject in the trial and did so.
3: Yeah. Typically, psychologically, the person who's the most homophobic is gay often. (laughs) That's just what I've experienced in my life. People who are the ones that are having the hardest, the hardest time dealing with, with someone who's gay is typically hiding their own feelings and their own insecurities
0: So I know we had talked earlier about before the don't ask, don't tell policy was implemented. You were in, didn't you say that you had somebody hit on you prior to the don't ask, don't tell policy?
3: Well, first of all, I was a good looking soldier. So (laughs) I was often hit on by both men and women. So yeah, I did actually, um, when I was a private, actually, when I was, when I was first in the military, I had a, I guess it would be like, like a section leader. That was like attracted to me and like, not while I was a student at this hospital, but after I had already left that, that place as a student and I was now at my permanent duty station, he approached me and he was like, Hey, I always had these feelings, you know, whatever, whatever. And I was like, Hey, (laughs) I'm flattered and all, but you know, I'm not attracted to guys. Like I'm not gay. And so you know i was very respectful in that conversation and and so was he but this is during the don't ask don't tell so you could just imagine
0: it was before or it was after it was implemented
3: this would have been in 1992 so it would have been right before then yeah this would have been right before the don't ask don't tell yeah this yeah this is right after ait after so even a bigger deal yeah it it would have been like like 92 93 that's about the time when it would have happened and obviously that's a huge exposure for someone to come out and be like, Hey, I, I, am into you like on a, you know, like a, like a, I'm attracted to you, you know, but just to think that that could have been the end of his career. I think he was at E7. Yeah. yeah. He was an E7. So, which means he was, you know, he was a career soldier at that point. So, but obviously, you know, it wasn't a problem to me and, and there would be other times throughout my military career that I would be hit on. Not from soldiers, not from other soldiers, but um, from like civilians that were, that were gay or whatever. And, and it's part of, like women go through it all the time. They're constantly being hit on. You know, when, when you just that good looking, like you just got to expect <laughs> that to happen. Like, so,
0: I'm, I think I was hit on once by a female in the military, but this would have been after the repeal as well.
3: Oh, oh really?
0: Glover. Glover has a very similar upbringing, I feel like, as Specialist Fisher, they're, Kind of stories are a little bit similar. But of course, Glover is a lot younger when he joins. And I feel like he just was at, like we've said already, he was at an impressionable stage in not just his age, but just based on how he grew up, what he went through, and then arriving and being a brand new low-ranking soldier at a new installation with an infantry unit. I think he was... Pretty easy to manipulate and pretty easy to impress upon. Calpurnia Sarah Adams, or Cal, as she was affectionately known, was born on February twentieth, nineteen seventy-one, as a boy.
4: I grew up in the South in the United States, in a state called Tennessee. And um, the South is is very friendly, very family oriented, very musical. But it's also deeply religious and um, conservative. So, I, I was a creative, fun child. I, I think I, I was very empathetic and always wanted to hold people's hands and, and you know be helpful and all that. But when my gender issues started to manifest, I, I got very negative feedback for that. When when I wanted to play as a little girl or act like a girl or any of those things, it was punished quite severely. Who, by? My parents, uh, my father was a minister in a Southern fundamentalist church. My mother was the church piano player. And they loved me very much, but they were of the time and of the place that they grew up and they didn't know how to deal with issues like mine, so. It it was very difficult. I became quite introverted uh, after I discovered that expressing myself resulted in punishment.
0: She attended the Hume Fogg Academic Magnet High School, and after graduating, enlisted in the Navy, serving four years as a hospital corpsman.
4: Around age 18, when I was finishing high school, I, I just saw no future for myself. I thought, well... In addition to being a minister, my father was a plumber and pipe fitter and welder. And I, I thought, is that even a possibility for me? No. And I didn't know what else to do. So I had scored very well on the military entrance exams. They uh, appeared and said, you can have any job you want in the military. Your scores are so good. And and I thought, it's going to be hard, but I'll escape at least. I'll get out. and. And I joined the Navy, and sure enough, I did. I saw the world, learned self-confidence, and it, it did a lot of good for me. I joined the Navy Hospital Corps because I thought at least I can be, you know, a little more soft and caring, and and provide comfort to people. I, I don't have to, you know, kill or fix uh, giant weapons or anything. And the the first Gulf War was just beginning around that time, so I had additional training as a field medical combat specialist uh, with the U.S. Marines. And straight away I flew uh, to Saudi Arabia with the the Marines and served all over taking care of, of sailors and Marines and prisoners of war.
0: Here, Cal deployed to the Middle East during the Gulf War and then closed out her service in Adak, Alaska, where she was recognized by Congress for a daring Aleutian Island plane rescue. During her last year in the military, she came out as a transgender woman.
4: Straight away when I got out of the military, that's when I started exploring my trans identity.
0: When asked about her service, cow would share that the military allowed her to leave the suffocating religious home where she lived and allowed her to experience the world it is here where she discovered her own strength discipline and self-reliance that continues to carry her through life as she left the navy and returned to nashville cow played fiddle for the celtic band before finding work at the connection nightclub in 1993. at the time that she met Winchell, she was heading 10 shows a week in the 40,000 square foot nightclub and was in her full sixth year as a full-time cast member. She had won a Miss Nashville Entertainer of the Year award and in 1999 also won Tennessee Entertainer of the Year.
4: I was performing uh, five nights a week, two shows a night at a 40,000 square foot nightclub for 2,000 people on a Saturday night And one Sunday, um, we had some military folks come in from the nearby base, and it was a, a lighter crowd, so I was playing around, having fun on the microphone, just talking. And there was a shy, handsome young man out there, and I flirted with him a little, and We had a spark after the show. We talked and made a coffee date. And that was the beginning of our relationship. Barry Winchell was a heterosexual man. He had only ever dated women. So, of course, I had worries, you know, am I woman enough for him? Am I good enough? And he set me at ease quickly. We went out to coffee. I'd scrubbed off all my show makeup. You know, I just had hair in a ponytail and and a clean face and jeans and a t-shirt and he accepted me and and flirted with me and treated me like a lady and it was very exciting because one is so insecure in those early days that night i was competing in the tennessee entertainer of the year pageant and he had duty that night um it was the fourth of july which is american independence day it's perhaps our most patriotic holiday Apparently, you know, while I was on stage performing, uh, his roommate, who had been stirring up anti-gay sentiment against him for dating me, and been mocking him and creating a terrible environment, his roommate influenced another uh, soldier to go outside and take a, a baseball bat and and beat him to death in his sleep. And, um, you know, it's, it's just hard to imagine or think about that somebody could do that to anyone else. And even, you know, especially when they're asleep, When when is a person more innocent than when they're asleep? And, and, and love is so hard to find. It's so hard to find someone who can accept you when you feel so flawed and so less than. And to find somebody who has an open heart enough like that and then to so cruelly kill them, it still breaks my heart all these years later.
0: After Winchell's murder, Cal suspended her performances, making the decision to move first to Chicago and then to Los Angeles. In 2002, she formed Deep Stealth Production in Hollywood with her friend Andrea James, which aims to create educational and entertainment material around gender identification issues and the experiences of differently gendered people in society. In 2008, Cal was on the reality TV show, Trans American Love Story, where she was placed among eight suitors to find love. Calpurnia continues to perform throughout the world alongside A-listed stars and Hollywood directors and is a steadfast voice for the trans and the LGBTQ community. So Calpurnia is, I feel like, important to the story because not only was she in a period in time in, in her life where she was kind of finding her voice and becoming confident in who she had become, but she also became a voice for the transgender and the LGBTQ community, not just then, but even still today. She's really done a lot of work. And I think that PFC Winchell's story was really a big piece of that. And I know that she doesn't like to talk about him because it's hard for her, but it is part of what propelled her even higher. I feel like she was already going into a very positive direction and I feel like she was already a big advocate, but I feel like this really made it more important for her and definitely very personal for her to advocate.
3: Yeah, she's done a lot of things on television and her production company that she has, Deep Stealth Productions, um, does a lot of consulting for movies where you have transgender actors or when they're portraying a transgender character. She does a lot of consulting in order to get make sure that it's accurate and reflective of the community.
0: Um, I watched an interview that she had done with somebody, and it was really funny because the person who was interviewing her was really nervous because she had released a video on YouTube talking about things not to ask a transgender person. and so the the person who was interviewing her was like, I don't want to ask you something that I shouldn't be asking you and And basically the gate the guidance that she gave her was, you know, if we get it that people are curious, but like if there's questions that you can look up online, like look it
3: up. I don't think that I would ever ask anybody who's transgender anything that I wouldn't ask somebody who's straight. If I yeah. wouldn't ask you a question if you were straight, I wouldn't ask you it to you if you were transgender. Well,
0: some people are inappropriate no matter what. So <laughs> that's yeah, true. so I guess that's really that's a really true. good perspective. So
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I just I just can't think of a question that I would ask anybody that would be offensive. But yeah. you know, I know there are people out there that that would so. Before Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy, the U.S. military maintained an outright ban on gay individuals in its ranks, a policy that silenced countless voices. But in 1993, a compromise was reached when President Bill Clinton signed the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 1994.
2: The policy I am announcing today is, in my judgment, the right thing to do and the best way to do it. It is right because it provides greater protection to those who happen to be homosexual and want to serve their country honorably in uniform, obeying all the military's rules against sexual misconduct. It is the best way to proceed because it provides a sensible balance between the rights of the individual and the needs of our military to remain the world's number one fighting force. I have ordered Secretary Aspen to issue a directive consisting of these essential elements. One, servicemen and women will be judged based on their conduct, not their sexual orientation. Two, the practice, now six months old, of not asking about sexual orientation in the enlistment procedure will continue. Three, an open statement by a service member that he or she is a homosexual will create a rebuttable presumption that he or she intends to engage in prohibited conduct, but the service member will be given an opportunity to refute that presumption. In other words, to demonstrate that he or she intends to live by the rules of conduct that apply in the military service. And Four, all provisions of the Uniform Code of Military Justice will be enforced in an even-handed manner as regards both heterosexuals and homosexuals and, thanks to the policy provisions agreed by the Joint Chiefs, there will be a decent regard to the legitimate privacy and associational rights of all service members."
3: This act introduced the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy, allowing gay, lesbian, and bisexual military personnel to serve as long as they concealed their sexual orientation. Don't Ask, Don't Tell was a double-edged sword. It prohibited inquiries into service members' sexual orientation, yet is still allowed for discharges if one's sexual identity was revealed or openly acknowledged. Over 13,000 service members would be discharged under the shadow of this policy, their lives forever altered. Criticism and controversy swirled around the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy with advocates for LGBTQ plus rights and military insiders denouncing the policy as discriminatory and fostering an atmosphere of fear and secrecy. The struggle for change was exemplified in high profile cases, including that of Lieutenant Colonel Margaret Cameron and PFC Barry Winchell. These stories drew national attention and ignited the call for reform. The turning point came on December 22nd of 2010 when President Barack Obama signed the Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal act of 2010 into law. This marked the end of the Don't Ask, Don't Tell era. The final curtain fell on September 20th, 2011 as Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy officially became history. The repeal of the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy marked a monumental milestone in the LGBTQ plus rights movement. It allowed gay, lesbian, and bisexual individuals to serve openly in the U.S. military, free from the specter of discrimination and discharge based on their sexual orientation. The change was a cause for celebration among advocates for the LGBTQ plus rights and many military leaders who believed that Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy had hindered the effectiveness of the military by discharging dedicated and capable service members. Despite initial apprehensions, the repeal didn't result in widespread issues or disruptions in the military. It was a momentous step forward in the fight for equality, paving the way for countless LGBTQ plus individuals to serve their country with pride and without fear.
0: So I did ask a couple people that we know who had been part of this community in the military, some before the policy was placed, some after the policy was repealed, um, some who are in command positions who are married, males married to males, females married to females. And the feedback was not great. I don't think anybody really who's currently active duty or currently serving really wants to get out and speak openly on the topic.
3: What you're saying is there's still stigma around being, being LGBTQ. And that means that there's still potential for repercussions, even though the policy has been repealed. Right. There's still people that fear that their careers may be impacted negatively to come out and be open. Now, no one's questioning it and you can't get kicked out for being gay. You can 100% be yourself, but That's not to say that it's not impacting your military career and that people aren't judging you based off of being gay or being bisexual or being lesbian or whatever.
0: And so that just lets you know that there's still stigma and unfortunately that we still have a ways to go.
3: Yeah, there's still work to do. Now, I know when I was in the military, when they repealed the don't ask, don't tell policy, and everyone was apprehensive about the change because... They thought that, I don't know, they thought the <laughs> world was going to implode. I don't, I don't know what they thought was going to happen. But everybody was worried about, well, what now? What happens with, you know, and there were logistical questions. right? Like, well, what about the bathrooms? Do we all shower together? Do we, you know, how does that work? And those are real problems in an organization where everyone's together. And those are real things that need to be solved for, both who are still supportive of the LGBTQ community And those who weren't right. You know, I remember some of the things that people were worried about were a little bit
0: funny. Like I would hear some of the guys talking about how at least with the don't ask, don't tell policy, nobody was, was like openly trying to hit on them. And that now was going to be different because they'd be in the shower and they wouldn't know, like you didn't know before, (laughs) like, you know, I don't think anybody's just going to act a different way now because you know, like it was kind of a silly concern. But then there are logistical challenges. And then there was things but those, that- But
3: those are, I wouldn't even say it's a silly concern. It's a legitimate well, concern. It's a, yeah. Like like a guy and a girl, you know there's a separation there. You know they're over there taking their showers. You're over here with the guys taking our showers. When you have guys that are attracted to other guys and you're all showering together, now you're not sure if they're watching you while you're showering. <laughs> Typically, you think they're not watching you while you're showering. And so you think there's a certain level of, of privacy. And the thing with the military is that it's all open. Right. There, there's no shower stalls. There's no, you know, no, well, not when I came in anyways. I don't know about now. There may be now, but when I came in, it was open showers. Like, right. you know, you stood in a circle and you showered in a circle with a bunch of other guys around you. And that was normal. But you would assume that those guys that were in that circle were not looking at you in a sexual kind of way. I can see where the concern comes from.
0: And then, you know, some of the concerns came up. As well, when it came to things like, you know, transgender, so when it comes to things like the, the physical fitness test, so females and males have very different standards in the military minus sit ups, is the only thing that's that runs pretty similar between males and females. And there's biological and physiological reasons for that. So people started getting concerned saying, well, what's to stop somebody from saying, well, I, you know, a guy from saying, well, I'm, I'm a girl so test me with the female standards and so then that became a big you know like well how are we going to deal with that and so I know that we had had a little bit of a discussion beforehand and you know the the truth of it is this is that it doesn't matter about all those things that you have to figure out what really matters is that we're doing the right thing And so, yeah, we're going to have to figure out how to deal with some of those things that will come up and the logistics things, just like how we had to do with deploying. And when, you know, um, we were in the, the beginning stages of deploying and you had females and males together and we couldn't give everybody separate showers. So now what do we do? We can't give everybody separate showers. Well, you can't let the guys and girls shower together. That that could be an issue. Um, so, what do we do? You know, we figured out a way to work it, and so right. I think it's just the same thing.
3: And it's also, well, you know, when we let women into the military, I'm sure when women were coming into the military, that was a huge culture shock for a military that had been all male at one point. Where now you're like, well, what about the women in formation, and do they need to live in their own barracks? And those are all logistical issues that have to be figured out. Right. in order to move forward you can't use that as a excuse to keep progress from happening
0: right and even now you know there's still a lot of debate with women moving closer and closer to the front lines and there's some legitimate concerns and then there's a lot of concerns that aren't legitimate that are more of a well we just need to figure out how to how to handle yeah. those things
3: just gotta so, figure it
4: out
0: yeah this case stands as a pivotal moment in the history of the U.S. military and its don't ask, don't tell policy. Like the fated lovers of Romeo and Juliet, PFC Barry Winchell fell in love with transgender showgirl Calpernia Adams and their secret relationship, encouraged to be kept hidden by the Army's don't ask, don't tell policy, became a symbol of the struggles faced by the LGBTQ community within the military. President Bill Clinton's Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy designed to address the issues of LGBTQ service members inadvertently ended up creating an atmosphere of secrecy and discrimination. When leaders in the military used the policy as a weapon to punish LGBTQ service members, the protection that should have been provided by the policy became harmful and injurious when wielded with wrong intent. It was within this context that Barry Winchell's life was tragically cut short due to harassment and violence related to his secret relationship. The case gained widespread attention and prompted national debate. Ultimately, it played a catalytic role in raising awareness about the injustices of the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy. Activists and advocates, including Barry Winchell's parents, Pat and Wally Cuddles, called for the repeal of the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy. In the aftermath of this tragic event, the military began to confront the consequences of its discriminatory policy. While it took time, the repeal of the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy in 2011 marked a significant step toward a more inclusive and accepting military environment thanks in part to the courage and sacrifice of individuals like PFC Barry Winchell. The Barry Winchell case serves as a powerful reminder of the importance of justice, equality, and the need to challenge policies that perpetuate discrimination within our armed forces.
3: And that's a wrap on today's investigation fellow detectives if you found this episode both enlightening and captivating then please subscribe to our podcast show and our patreon leave a review and hit that like button share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms you can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content including valuable resources By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate and contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime podcast, podcast. Bye.